Welcome to the Abundant Edge Podcast. You're in the right place for all things regenerative living, ecological restoration, permaculture, and natural building. I'm your host, Oliver Gaucher. In this show, it's my job to interview leaders, innovators, and rebels on the cutting edge of their fields as we look for solutions to our generation's most urgent challenges and share these techniques and information so that you can join us in creating a healthy and abundant world for everyone. So let's get started. Without a doubt, the most important mission of our lifetimes will be regenerating this planet and creating a new culture based on care and stewardship for all life. But it can be hard to know where to start. After more than 150 episodes of speaking to leaders and innovators in the regenerative fields around the world, and working with clients and organizations to help them reach their regenerative goals, I've compiled many lists of essential skills and steps that anyone can take today to begin their journey towards a brighter future for themselves their families and communities, and for the ecosystems that support them. Every two weeks, I'll send you a new regenerative skill that you can develop and expand on in your own life right away. What's more is that I'm creating a community of skill builders like you who are sharing their results and stories of success to inspire you towards greater action. You can sign up right now in the show notes for this episode or on the homepage at AbundantEdge.com. Start your week off right by building your skills for a regenerative future. Though I've been inspired by all the amazing examples of regenerative farming through the people that I've interviewed through this series, there's one glaring commonality between all of them, and that's the fact that the success of their enterprises all rely heavily on the destructive infrastructure that we currently have in place in order to get things like the organic feeds and inputs of their enterprises, the seeds or young animals that they then raise, and then they're reliant on the fossil fuel system that then transports their food products to market. Now, I'm not at all criticizing these people or their work. It would be near impossible to make a living and produce a meaningful amount of food, certainly not enough to base a business around, if they weren't working with the resources and the systems of our modern times. But there's no denying that the same systems that make these business models feasible are unlikely to continue for much longer, and certainly not in the way that we're using and operating them now. That's why I got really excited about the work and writings of Shane Simonson, who is conducting personal experiments and documenting the process and observations on his homestead in eastern Australia, all around the concept of zero-input agriculture. His blog by that same name is one of the most original approaches to large-scale food production that I've come across in a long time, and asks the simple question of how might we still be able to produce enough food for ourselves and our communities if we no longer had access to all the inputs and fossil fuels of our modern times. Now, despite sounding like a post-apocalyptic exercise in primitive living, Shane's writing is surprisingly optimistic and pragmatic. In a small excerpt from his very first post from September 2019, he writes, In the resource-constrained future ahead of us, these input-dependent approaches to growing food will become impractical or impossible. Instead, new systems that rely on locally adapted crops and livestock integrated into systems that are truly compatible with the local geology and climate will be required. I've taken on the challenges of developing these systems in our particular region in the remaining two decades of vigor that I have left in me. This blog is an account of this journey. Hopefully I can inspire some of you to follow in my direction and develop your own locally adapted systems. Now in this interview with Shane, we cover a wide range of topics from soil building to locally resilient plants and livestock, as well as experiments and the challenges of adapting these ideas to your site. All with the aim of answering the question, 
Can humans go from a universal parasite to a universal symbiont? I highly recommend that you check out Shane's blog, which I've linked to in the show notes for this episode at AbundantEdge.com. So with that out of the way, I'll hand things over now to Shane. Hey, Shane, thanks so much for being on the podcast today. How are you doing? I'm doing great. How are you? I'm doing well, all things considered. Spain's finally starting to ease out of the estado de alarma. And uh, well, so we're going into our summer, but you are going into your winter. How is that transition on your homestead going? Uh, well, this is the busiest time of year. Uh, we normally get our rains through the late summer and the autumn. So um, that's when I do most of my planting and establishing because uh, I don't use any irrigation. So I, I basically have to rely on, on the weather and the groundwater to do the job for me. Yeah, yeah, for sure. Now, look, before we jump into all of your interesting methods of zero input agriculture, why don't you tell us all a little bit about your background and how you became interested in zero input agriculture and plant breeding? Oh, great. Um, so how far back do you want to go? When, when I was a kid, I was uh, your typical biology and plant nerd. I, I grew every weird plant that I could get my hands on. I still have a few of those hanging around now. Um, that led into doing a research degree. And I was planning on doing botany, but I was friends with a botanical taxonomist at the time who recommended that I do chemistry instead because it's more employable. And I, anyway, I, I took his advice and um, ended up doing a, a research degree, a PhD in plant peptide chemistry. Um, so that got to combine both of my loves, uh, did field work all over Australia, collecting plants and did all sorts of hair raising chemistry. So that was kind of interesting. And I segued into an academic career, started it off and I just wasn't feeling it. I, I, I was actually, um, I was living in Canberra, our capital, where it's like cold and dry. And I was spending my weekends running a small gardening business and having a huge garden in my rental, even though it was insecure. And I only looked forward to doing that on the weekend during the week, just, you know, looking at beakers stirring. It wasn't that exciting. Um, and around that time, the world was obviously crumbling around us. So I left just before the, um, the global financial crisis. Uh, uh, and bought a 40-acre Sunshine Coast hinterland, which is in subtropical Australia. And um, yeah, now that we've paid it off, I'm a full-time experimental farmer. And that's how I fill my days now. Fantastic. So you were mostly motivated to get your own homestead because of the collapse you were seeing around you. Was it also kind of motivated by what you had been studying? It was, I mean, did that kind of determine what you were looking for as far as land and possibilities for growing seasons? Mm, um, like most things in life, it was just a series of kind of fortunate events uh, that we ended up with this particular chunk of land. Um, and we were kind of fortunate to get it at a kind of um, non-bubble price. Uh, it, it, Anyway, I won't get into the conditions of how we were, were lucky enough to get it. But um, I don't know, I grew up in the subtropics, so I'm more familiar with uh, how to grow here. And um, my family's here, so I, th I think it was just mostly those circumstances. But I have been uh, peak oil aware since about 2000. And um, yeah, things were getting quite hairy in the run-up to the global financial crisis. So I think that was the final push I needed to, um, to get out of uh, the cities and run for the hills. And that time... Things turned around. I, I was open-minded about where it was all going to go. And same this time around with whatever's coming down the line at us. Uh, it looks bad, but um, a lot of people were saying it was, you know, instant Armageddon uh, 12 years ago. And sure. um, things kept st staggering along. So I wouldn't be surprised if we keep staggering along for another generation or two. 
Mm. Well, so I've been fascinated by what I've been reading on your blog on zero input agriculture. And it seems like one of your motivations is something that you write about, about how humans can go from this category that you call us as a universal para parasite to a universal symbiont. Can you explain oh. kind of a, what being a universal parasite is defined by our actions on the planet and what it would mean or what it would look like if humanity became a universal symbiont? You actually read that article. I'm so, so chuffed. Um, so yeah, I'm very interested in human origins and all of our deep history. And um, in relationships between species, they often start out as predatory. One animal will just completely eat the other. Over time, that can develop into something that's a little bit less cut and dried, uh, it'll become parasitic as the organism learns to exploit that resource without completely destroying it. And I look at humans as going through a similar kind of transition that early humans were just the ultimate hunting machine. They traveled all over the planet and ate pretty much every animal that they could cross paths with, um, driving many of them to extinction and crashing ecosystems along the way. Um, eventually that had to stop and domestication happened, uh, both with plants and with animals. And we've become a bit more parasitic with the way that we interact with those organisms. You could argue we're exploiting them to their detriment. Um, but over time, those relationships in biology tend to become more symbiotic, where both parties, uh, both species are interacting to mutual benefit. And um, I think humans have that ability because we can interact with almost any other species on the planet um, because we're so behaviorally flexible. And so it's just a matter of determining what our future with our interactions with this planet are going to look like. And if we continue to extract these resources to their detriment, or if we can find sort of a symbiotic way of helping them to increase while still utilizing them. Is that right? Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. You, you could see humans as potentially a universal keystone species where the whole ecosystem kind of cascades out from us. But I mean, it's still early days, 10,000 years, 100,000 years. That's a blink of an eye in evolutionary terms. Mm -hmm. So we're still, invasive species are the same. Like when they first appear in an environment, they often kind of run amok and, and get completely out of balance. But in time, other factors come into play and the relationships become less one-sided and, and things kind of fall into place. Mm-hmm. Well, so that leads us to zero input farming and kind of the dedication of your blog and what seems like your life's work on your, your homestead. Let's talk about, first of all, is it possible to have a significant output from a piece of land without inputs that are fuel intensive? I, I would say yes. I mean, we've been doing it for 10,000 years or so. It's only in the last couple of hundred years that we've become addicted to fossil fuels to make everything happen for us. So in some ways, I'm very retrospective and I'm very interested in those pre-fossil fuel agricultural systems. Um, there's not a lot of hard evidence left for them. Like you kind of have to infer historically how things happen. So um, particularly in Europe and Asia, they have direct connection to those historical um, cultures. So in some ways, they're at a bit of an advantage. Whereas in the New World, in the Americas and Australia, there's a much deeper historic past with the um, indigenous people that live there, but so much of that has been lost. Not all of it, but a lot of it. And for 
people that are more recently immigrated to those areas, areas we're basically starting from scratch. Um, it, we, we need to really redesign things on the fly. It, it opens up a lot of possibilities about what we might end up doing. We're not just kind of automatically doing what happened hundreds of years ago, um, but it means there's a lot more trial and error that we need to go through to figure out what actually works. Now, you say that you look back for examples on how to do zero input agriculture, but what is the difference in between what you're practicing and pre-industrial agriculture? Is it just a matter of going back or are you still utilizing the knowledge and sort of the technology of the day to, to increase the yields based on what they could have expected just before fossil fuels came into the picture? Mm, um, well, one thing that's important is that I'm not always focused on increasing yields. Um, probably my bigger priority is reliability. Um, you probably know that Australia has a, a kind of naturally very variable climate. And um, it's quite common for us to go from like soaking wet years to really dry years and back again. Um, so uh, finding plants that can be dependable is uh, much more important than maximizing yields. Um, so that, that's one thing to consider. Um, what's the other issue? Uh, the other issue is that we're not, we don't have a lot of the limitations that we had pre-industrial agriculture. Um, so the, the biggest thing to think about is the Columbian exchange, all of those amazing domesticated plants that got exchanged all over the world during a really short period of time and the enormous impact they had on agricultural systems around the world. So, um, we're in a position today where we can source plants from pretty much anywhere on the planet. So my real interest is in locating um, orphan crops that have been used in, um, you know, pre-industrial agricultural systems around the world hundreds of years ago, but they've mostly been replaced by, you know, cheap industrial uh, grain flooding in from overseas um, and reinvigorating those uh, crops, reinvigorating, uh, getting a bit of genetic diversity back into them and trying to select out varieties that work under my local conditions. Now, see, this is fascinating work to me because it's so important for it to be done on a global scale. The mm. plants that you're adapting to your region and your climate variations are not going to be appropriate for where I'm at or, you know, just Absolutely. about any other variation on, on climates are. But you've done some remarkable work in looking at uh, what I've heard referred to as um, analog climates and places around the world that have very similar conditions to where you live and seeing mm -hmm. what crops and plants have traditionally been grown there and then trialing them in your space. Can you give me an example of that? Yes. Yeah. So we're in um, the subtropics. We get a little bit of frost in the winter occasionally because we've got a tiny bit of altitude here, um, but it's, you can pretty much ignore it. Um, and we get seasonal dry almost at any time of the year, usually in late spring, early summer, but all over the place. So places with a similar climate to that uh, is the eastern part of South Africa. Um, so examples of crops that I've sourced from there, uh, there's a fruit tree called the K-apple, K-E-I, and it's this horrible spiny monster, but it gets these apricot-like fruit um, that are quite delicious. And I'm, I'm growing that to perfection here. Loves our conditions. There's a orphan tuba crop from the same area, um, sometimes called the Livingstone potato. I'm sure it's got all sorts of colorful native names as well uh, in the genus Plectranthus in the mint family. Um, and I'm uh, trying my hardest to track down uh, genetic material of that for breeding. Um, it's a great example. Um, sorry, I'll keep going with the um, climate analogies. Um, 
parts of coastal Peru are similar to us, and that's where canna comes from originally, the arrow root that I've talked about uh, just briefly before. Um, southern Brazil is fairly similar to us as well. And in the Northern Hemisphere, there's little pockets that are either slightly at higher altitude in the tropical zones that are more similar to us, um, maybe a little bit of Spain as well, uh, where you are, has, has some similarities. Actually, yeah, I wouldn't be surprised because, you know, the, the light frosts and mild winters that you talked about are similar and there is a huge variation in altitude because we are close to the Pyrenees where I am, but we are, yeah. I think, quite a bit drier on average. You can get, you know, major rainy years, whereas I don't think we can ever really quite expect that kind of annual rainfall. Um, mm. But it, it could be interesting to trial some things, especially if you found uh, plants that do well in drought conditions. You know, I, I mean, a lot of things can kind of bounce back if there's a good amount of rain, but it, there's yes, a select yeah. few that can make it through the dry periods without irrigation. It, our big problem is we often go from very hot and dry, like 40 degrees for mm. months on end, and then it suddenly turns wet and humid. So finding plants that are drought tolerant but then can take the sudden change to wet is sometimes a bit of a challenge. But yeah, I'd definitely be interested in sending you some material if you want to trial it. And Definitely. You can, you, you can ask any ex expert about, will this plant grow in this particular place? You never know until you try. Mm. Um, you just have to put plants in the ground and see what they want to do. Sure. And what I'm doing right now is I'm tapping into local knowledge, people who've been here and growing particular things for a long time to start getting an idea of what grows well. But I mean, from the design work I've been doing for clients and projects that I've worked on for myself, you very quickly find microclimates even within a small area that could support things that the macroclimate couldn't. But because those conditions are unique there, it offers new potential. Is that something that you're leveraging on your site? Uh, absolutely, absolutely. Um, we actually live in what's meant to be one of the most geologically diverse soils in the world. Um, we're right in the middle of a whole lot of old um, volcanoes uh, called the Glasshouse Mountains, and we've got like four of them right around us. You can actually see them from the farm. They're, they're beautiful. But the problem with that is you dig a hole and it's like, oh, that looks a particular texture and color. And you, you walk 10 meters and dig another hole and it's completely different. So in some ways, that's really great because it expands the range of plants that we can grow here. But the flip side is you've got to find the right soil that they actually want to grow in. Um, so I, I, to compensate for that, I propagate all of my own plants and I tend to plant them out when they're really small or direct seed, even better. And that allows me to just experiment all over the place. And if things die, it's not a big deal. Um, Mark Shepard, I think, takes a very similar approach. He's been a big inspiration to me. Yeah, I really like his stun method of planting trees, yes. sheer total yeah, yeah, other yeah. neglect and what makes it, makes it and, and is worth propagating, especially if it makes it to maturity and has ideal fruit or particular characteristics that they enjoy. And, and I, I know they've had a lot of success in their breeding nursery through that method and selecting for hardiness because of the severity of the cold in his area of Wisconsin, which is not far from where I grew up. Mm, mm. Yeah, no, absolutely. Absolutely. And it's one of the things I would recommend most strongly to people who are heading along a similar path is don't buy large trees from nurseries that cost, you know, $30, $50 each because um, it just doesn't scale. If you're only in a small backyard, fine. That's that's the way you can approach things. Um, but setting up a small propagating nursery and using that to, to leverage, to, to produce lots of small tube stock and getting it out while it's small is the best thing that you can do. Yeah, see, that's something I've been really getting into since I got here in Spain is like 
I just didn't realize how many fruit trees like you can find in this area because obviously it's been it's been uh, civilized or uh, under cultivation for for thousands of years this region of the mm-hmm. world and so you can find you know 500 to 1000 year olive trees and fig trees that just have been you know growing over time and taking up more space and how easy it is to propagate a lot of those from cuttings like i'm looking out my window right now and i've got a whole bunch of cuttings that have sprouted from fig trees and i'm trying to come up with a collection of different types that have good fruit but that also Mm. extend the season from the earliest ones in spring all the way to the latest ones in fall and i think i I wouldn't be afraid of growing from seed as well if you've got the room to spare Um, my approach is i basically plant two to three times as many trees as the final space will hold and as they start to mature the ones that produce first if it's reasonable quality fruit they've won the race and the ones that are taking their time are the ones that get chopped out and fed to the goats There's just so many possibilities with this. And I I really like reading blogs and talking to people who are, you know, are much more advanced with this. It's one of the things that I know that I'm going to be pursuing more in the future. But let's go back and talk a little bit about how you find your references and trial your techniques in low input or zero input agriculture. Where have you been able to look either in history or even in other examples now of examples of, of low input or zero input agriculture as reference to give you ideas of what to trial? It, it's actually pretty rare. And it's something I find a bit puzzling with the, the broader permaculture movement. Mm. Um, the intensive approaches of growing uh, seem to be the go-to. And fair enough for people that are in small spaces, that is the best use of your space. That's the limiting ingredient. But the um, extensive low intensity way of growing um, is I think it's worth nurturing it and, and reinvigorating it because a few hundred years ago, you couldn't get water coming out of a hose. Um, if you wanted to irrigate, you either had to be down on a, a floodplain or carrying buckets around and um, even mulch. I'm, I'm a bit of a, um, a skeptic about mulch. Like it does what it says on the label, but it's produced by machines. Like if you've ever tried to produce it by hand, it's so much work that it's barely worth doing. (laughs) For sure. And so look. Um, Yeah. So um, sources, uh, Steve Solomon uh, wrote a book, uh, Gardening When It Counts. And he, he was one of my early sources for talking about extensive versus intensive uh, vegetable growing. Um, But he made references to like old Indian uh, American Indian systems for uh, growing staples as well. And, and outlined those general techniques. Uh, as, As I said, Mark Shepard's been a huge inspiration uh, Fukuoka, if you can wade through his uh, fairly obscure text, uh, has a lot of insights as well. Um, but apart from that, yeah, there's, I don't think there's many other people I know of these days who are working along these lines. Yeah, aside from the first one that you mentioned, uh, I could really only think of like Mark Shepard and Restoration Agriculture and Fukuoka. Um, though I didn't read his more recent books, The One Straw Revolution is really, really inspiring as, as, a, as an idea of sort of using staple crops and successional planting because the mulch just stays in place there and you grow the next crop through the residue of the previous crop. Is that something yeah. that you're, you're doing yourself, kind of broadcasting seed through successions of harvests or do you have a different technique? Uh, with staple crops here, grains are a bit hit and miss. Um, oh, I've, I've, right, yeah. I've trialled pretty much every grain under the sun and it's either the wet and dry coming at the wrong time or our plagues of birds or rats finishing them off. But mm. I do have a few candidates that do okay. 
Um, the tuber crops are probably the main uh, focus for me just because they're so much more reliable and uh, adaptable when, when conditions aren't quite perfect. I wonder if that, that would be true in a lot of other places as well, being that tuber crops tend to be a little less brittle or a little less sensitive, at least from the, the bit that I've seen. And yes, yeah. It's actually a pet theory of mine. It may, it's probably not only my theory that large-scale grain-based civilization only became possible around the world when the climate settled into fairly predictable patterns because mm. you need it to be wet when you're planting it and dry when you're harvesting it. And you can have rain turn up on the day of harvest and just basically completely destroy the crop. Mm -hmm. And that might be one reason why grain-based agriculture popped up independently all over the planet within a relatively short period of time. Um, we're heading into a less stable climate around the world and even traditional grain growing regions are finding it very difficult to produce crops like they used to because the weather's just not doing what it was supposed to. And that might actually tip us back to being a more tuber dependent uh, culture. There, there might be an advantage there. Well, the good news with the tubers is that there's so many varieties available that most people are entirely unaware of. I have heard a lot of stories of Peruvian cultures being able to subsist entirely for all of their nutrient and caloric needs from different varieties of tubers. And, you know, we've selected those down for mass production to just sort of the largest and most starchy ones, not really selecting for nutrition or hardiness or appropriateness for climate. And yes, yeah. there's so much more potential in the variety that's out there that is not common in most diets. Mm. Well, in, in, if you look at industrial agriculture, it's dominated by a small number of crops because of the demands of mechanization. So if you want to design machinery for planting and harvesting potatoes, it's going to be very specialized for just that crop and often just particular varieties of that crop. Like if you went to the Peruvian Andes and looked at all those varieties of you know, amazing diverse potatoes that they had and tried to make them work with the machinery that farmers in Iowa, Idaho are using, um, it just wouldn't be compatible. So I think that's one of the reasons we've seen such a loss in uh, genetic diversity in crops. It's the demands of me mechanization. Um, even with the grain crops, they've, they've been massively narrowed in the genetic base um, uh, and particularly uh, driving properties of being uh, highly responsive to fertilizer and irrigation. So if you look at historic charts of um, productivity of those major crops over the last few hundred years, they've just exploded because they've selected genetics that you can intensively pump with chemicals um, and get a massive response. Um, the flip side of that is the old field crops, the, the staple crops that people used to grow with zero input um, at, in kind of peasant agriculture, where the yields were nowhere near as spectacular, but they didn't need all of those inputs to push them along. So if you look on the return of invested resources, they were probably better off. Yeah, definitely. And, and you know, we, we're talking now mostly about the mechanized versions. With the fossil fuel inputs, you're getting much less energy out of the yield of what you're harvesting <clears throat> than what you've put in to actually cultivate it. If you're breaking yes. it down by like, you know, a, a, a similar conversion, either caloric or BTUs or whatever it is you're using. Mm -hmm. And, and so we're basically we're using farms as a way of turning lots of oil into a small amount of wheat. Yeah, that's a really good way of putting it. Yeah, exactly. The conversion is horrible. Mm. Um, so, so yeah, yeah that's, that's reason to be worried about where things are heading in the future as, um, mm -hmm. as those resources eventually hit limits. Yeah. Do you feel like there's a way that it could be converted to a renewable energy source, say solar or wind or you know, whatever else? 
that could compensate and make it a more favorable uh, conversion? Or it's just a matter of like, we're going to run out of these resources, the conversion is going to reach its limits because, <laughs> because it's entirely unsustainable. And then we'll have to all go back to this method together. I, I'm not particularly hopeful about um, alternative energy sources. I yeah. think at best they might be a parachute on the way down, but they're not going to be a jetpack that takes us off to some higher level of um, complexity as a society. Mm. Mm. Um, and at worst, they might be like a, an anchor around our neck. They, we might actually be pouring resources into something that it, it isn't really worth doing. Mm. They're, they're just delaying us uh, facing hard facts. I don't know. I don't have a crystal ball, but um, I'm hedging my bets here. <laughs> fair enough. Fair enough. Now, so look, we've, there's plenty of examples of cultures that have wiped or that have been wiped out because of their ecosystems and resource bases being depleted, even without fossil fuel inputs or the mechanized methods we were talking about. Mm. How does zero input agriculture break this mold? Because you can destroy an ecosystem without machinery Maybe not as yeah, just, quickly, but you can get there. There's plenty of yes. examples. Yeah, um, I, I guess that the short-term aim of zero-input agriculture is to gather and refine their particularly genetic resources, um, like crop diversity, um, while it's still possible to do that, and de- uh, integrate them into systems that don't rely on all of those intensive inputs, um, with a particular emphasis on staple crops. So, so coming then yeah, about I, I don't I think it's basically uh, insurance against a complete civilizational collapse sure. at some point in the future. Sure. Now, okay, let's start talking about some of the specific examples and the learnings that you've come to from your own work. Now, you mm-hmm. have forty acres in subtropical northern northeastern Australia, as a reference to other people who are thinking about how this would work for them. Mm. That should be more than enough space to create all of your needs, even if you weren't, you know, like you could practically forage your own food needs off 40 acres, depending on how (laughs) many people you are, right? So, Well, it's just the two of us. It mm. was an ex-dairy property, so it was all grass to begin. Um, We had an interesting novel disease go through and wipe out almost all of our pasture grasses a few years ago, the whole, the whole region basically lost its pasture grass to some weird, um, they think it was a virus that was spread by mealybugs. Mm-hmm. Um, so all of that's been replaced with um, mostly cobbler's pegs, Spanish needle, I think is the more common name overseas. Biden's. Okay. I'm um, not which, familiar with that. Uh, okay. Um, it's, it's the one that get the little, uh, it Biden's alba or Biden's pylosa. So it's a daisy that gets about, mm, one to two meters tall here and gets these little seed pods that stick all over you. So um, it was fortunate at that time that we swapped from cows to goats and geese because the goats love eating the weeds. There's almost nothing left on the property that I really look at as a weed now. It's all just different goat forms of goat food. Um, And even the geese eat the seeds off this particular weed. And I'm sure we could too, if we had to, but um, it's a bit of a, ecological moonscape other than a little bit of residual um, old growth rainforest that's got some interesting species in it. Um, And most of it is low hills, so not really suitable for cultivation. It's okay for grazing and trees. And we've only got a very small, uh, probably about three acres on the creek flats that has land that's sufficient quality soil and still not great by world standards. It's um, mostly cracking clay that you can actually um, look at doing slightly more intensive production of um, perennials and annuals. 
Mm. Mostly just because it's able to hold the water better than other soils? Uh, well, it, it, it's closer to the water table, basically. Gotcha. So um, our clay is really good at retaining moisture. So we get moisture percolating down the hills for months after the drought start. And um, yeah, just being lower down in the landscape just means that moisture is there for the plants to get it if they've got a strong enough root system to get to it. Sure, sure. Mm. All right. So in that case, tell me about some of the different staple crops that you've trialed on your place and, and kind of where you're at with those trials. Yes. Yeah. Um, so probably the one that's furthest along is canna. So people might know that as an ornamental with big rubbery leaves and uh, various colors of usually red and yellow flowers. It's become fairly common as an ornamental overseas. Um, so it was originally um, from Central and Northern South America and was domesticated by the, the Peruvians. Pretty much everything they touch seemed to turn to gold. So it's probably closest to bananas and ginger in its growth form, but it's got a large swollen root about the size of maybe a grapefruit at its largest size, which has starch in it. Um, so it was grown commercially in uh, this area a long time ago when it was uh, first settled, uh, mostly using imported, uh, I guess you could say slave labor from the Pacific Islands around the area. Um, because it's a basically a pre-industrial crop, all of that work had to be done by hand. And the roots can be uh, ground up and a really high quality starch extracted out of them. Um, we've got a local biscuit called an arrowroot biscuit, a milk arrowroot biscuit. These days they've got like 0.1% arrowroot flour, which comes from the Caribbean, hmm. from a different species, um, Maranta arundinacea, which is still grown over there as a staple crop. So it's, uh, yeah, it's a weird kind of uh, cultural echo that's persisted all of this time. Hmm. Um, anyway, so that old clone called Queensland arrowroot is still grown by permaculturalists around here and occasionally they'll eat it, but uh, people mostly just say you can eat it and don't actually do anything with it. And I got really interested in it because it grows like an absolute weed. Like it's a staple crop should be so vigorous that you don't have to really stress to keep it alive and keep it going. Sure. Um, the problem with it though, is it's just a single clone. Um, and if you know anything about the Irish potato famine, um, yep. that should make you nervous about like building a staple crop uh, system around just one clone. Um, and in fact, with cannas grown in horticulture overseas, they've started to accumulate really nasty viruses um, that just destroy them. So when you grow things from seed, they usually shake off those viruses and you get a clean start. So I'm like, okay, how can I start breeding with this, this old clone to, to do something more interesting with it? So um, years ago, I started reaching out to canna uh, fanciers, canna experts all around the world and managed to find someone in the UK who'd done fieldwork to South America and had these really weird varieties, um, including one that turned out to probably be the ancestral species for the domesticated forms because it's got really large tubers as well. Uh, grows like three metres tall. It's amazing. Oh. So um, the question was, is the Queensland arrowroot actually fertile? Can it produce any seeds or is there something like broken about its genetics? So um, I had to go through multiple years of figuring out, can I store the pollen? Because they flowered at different times of the year. Um, turns out I couldn't after a lot of um, home lab experiments to figure that out. Um, but I eventually figured out if you cut back the, um, that wild species halfway through its growing system a season, it delays its flowering so that it lines up with the Queensland arrowroot and you can do direct hand pollination. And it's funny, they're bird pollinated flowers. And when I say hand pollination, I actually mean I use my hands. I go around and get pollen on my fingers mm. in little piles. And then I go to the other plants and apply the pollen. And um, I'm now growing out um, 
the third generation, uh, second generation of hybrids. Um, and for anyone in interested uh, that's listening, I have spare seed from those uh, early uh, breeding program that um, I just sent to anyone in the world for the price of postage because um, that early diversity, I'll be refining it for my conditions, but it could be refined in other directions as well. Uh, mm. It could even become an annual crop for places that have cold winters. That's fantastic. I mean, yeah, the, the potential of expanding on the genetics of that and, and getting more people to propagate it could, it could result in some really fantastic things. What are some of the other crops that you're trialing? Um, so the, the other one that's probably partially along, but it's a very long-term project. So uh, we've got a local uh, conifer tree called a bunya nut. I, I don't know if you've heard about it. I have. Like, I, I, so I remember reading about this on your blog, and I've seen it uh, once before in an ornamental row in Antigua, Guatemala. And uh, I wouldn't have noticed it at first, but I went back there at a certain season. I can't remember what time of year it was now. And it's got these cones the size of watermelons that are at yes. the ground there. And I was like, this is right next to a walking path. This is the hazard. <laughs> the, don't forget that they're covered in spines as well. Oh, yeah, yeah. It's like a mace <laughs> falling from the sky. So, yeah, it's an amazing tree. It looks like something out of a Dr. Zeus um, storybook. Does. They're beautiful. Um, the though. closest relative people in temperate climates might know is the monkey puzzle tree. Mm -hmm. um, it, similar kind of from the age of dinosaurs, basically they're, they're a very old lineage. So they grow locally in my area and were a major source of food for the local indigenous people. Um, they get large starchy nuts inside those cones that taste somewhere between a pine nut and a chestnut. And um, we, we eat them every year here and there's, there's trees all over the place. They're, they're fairly common. Um, so I was looking at this tree thinking, do I want to take this on as a breeding project? And it's like, how long have I got left on the clock? I'm, I'm yeah. in my forties. So they take about 15 years to mature. So I'm like, okay, let's do this. It, it, who else would have the space and the security of the land and the time and the interest to do it. So it's like, if it's not going to be me, they'll be waiting for like another 200 million years for someone to, to look at them. <laughs> so I went out when we had a really bumpy year, there are masting species like, um, like a lot of the oaks are, you get some years that they just produce way more cones than normal. So during one of those years, I got in the car and drove all over the countryside, like driving for days, trying to locate remnant trees that are like 100 years plus old in order to get as much genetic diversity as I can. So I managed to find about 15 different places and I was quite astonished at how diverse they were. I was suspecting going out that they'd all look the same, but they're actually really diverse. Um, so they're now growing out. I was just planting out a whole lot of seedlings um, this rainy season and they're, they're looking okay. And you're planting um, them from that nut inside of the cone? Uh, yes. So there, I've tried direct sowing. My soil isn't quite up to it. So when you start them in a pot, they've got this peculiar germination where they put out a tuber first and they hide underground for a while. Um, it might be an adaptation for fire, but they're not a particularly fire tolerant species. So it's a bit of a mystery what that's all. You can eat that little tuber as well if you want. It's kind of like a parsnip. Hmm. Um, and then later they put up a spike. So I grew them out in pots, got them up to a reasonable size and then put them out and um, they're, they're looking pretty happy now. So now I just have to, to wait for 15 odd years. <laughs> now the long wait. Yes. Uh, but the interesting thing is that this is the really key part though. So when a species of plants or maybe animals even, but mostly plants get domesticated, they usually go through a hybridization event so if you look into the, the origin of pretty much any crop that humans have, it actually started as a group of at least two separate wild species that cross fertilized. And from that hybrid population, all that genetic diversity, you can pick out something that works for people. 
Um, and it's really amazing looking back at this common pattern. In fact, it happened for humans. I mean, we hybridized with Neanderthals and other things along the way. Mm-hmm. So it, it's a very common pattern in nature. Mm. Um, it, it, a really salient example is the macadamia nut that also comes from just up the road from me, the, where the wild species grow. Um, there was a tree collector who got two of those wild species and crossed them, you know, just out of interest or maybe accidentally. And the whole macadamia industry that we have today is based on that one chance cross that someone decided to put these two wild species together and see what happens. Yeah, it's crazy. That's another one that's massive in Guatemala. Mm, mm. Yeah. Um, a lot of weed species in the world are like that as well. So lantana, that's a major weed in Australia. It's actually a three-way hybrid of three ornamental species that are perfectly well behaved on their own. And when all of that um, magic got put together, boom, it's like the sorcerer's apprentice. Mm-hmm. Mm. So anyway, getting back to the bunion nuts, I'm like, okay, so we've got a bit of genetic diversity here and you know, I could probably do something with it, but can I do a hybridization? So I looked around and it's a Gondwanan species. So they're also in South America. And it turns out there's another species in Southern Brazil, which has a very similar climate to us called the piranha pine. Um, not like the biting fish, it's all A, P-A-R-A-N-A. And um, it also produces large edible nuts that the indigenous people have eaten there for thousands of years. And um, I've managed to get my hands on some of those. I've imported them uh, following all the procedures and um, they're now growing in amongst my bunya grove. Fantastic. And how long do you have Mm. to wait to to see if that's working? Uh, They're faster growing by the look of them, but a little bit slower to mature. So again, they should be flowering around about the same time as the bunyas. The really amazing thing though, um, and I do know hybrids can occur between those species. They um, have them growing in Kew Gardens in the UK. So I'm not, I'm not going to wait 15 years and then find out they're not compatible. But the really amazing thing is unlike the bunya nuts, the piranha pines have separate male and female trees, mm. which some plants do. So it's going to break my heart. But when those piranha pines start maturing, the males are going to have to get culled. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So the remaining females, when they produce seeds, they have to be hybrids with the bunyas. Yeah, of course. Mm. And the plan is to send those seeds all over the planet, basically. Um, <laughs> anyone who's got a, a even remotely suitable climate, they should be giving these a go and adapting them to local conditions. Now, before we start advocating that everybody just start planting all kinds of non-native species wherever they are, what kind of mm. precautions would you advise to make sure that we're not unleashing the next invasive <laughs> species or you know, whatever it might be? It's a really interesting question and it's the kind of thing that gets permaculture um, circles just at each other's throats. It, yes. It's an, itch, an issue that people feel very passionately about either way. Which is why I'll let you answer it and not weigh in it on myself. <laughs> <laughs> um, there definitely is a lot of potential for, for weeds and invasive species to have massive impacts on human society. Um, but the the flip side of that is if some kind of weird hybrid broccoli, for example, started spreading across acres and people could eat it, isn't that a good thing? I mean, a lot of invasive species, like think of Florida in the US, they're edible. Um, If people actually went out and ate kudzu and ate water yam, would it be a problem? And it could actually be the greatest resource in the future if we have a difficult period in history ahead of us that we have these stands of of self-sustaining species that we can eat if we have to. Sure. Yeah, a lot of it just is going to come down to adaptation if you learn how to use it and make sure that, because I mean, a lot of them become invasive in areas where the land is already degraded and they're taking, or they're making use of an opportunity that 
that Absolutely. ecosystem was unable to fill or unable to fill as fast or as vigorously. And so they're yeah. kind of repairing the land in a lot of cases. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. I totally agree with that uh, sentiment. The, the, I think it's the Chinese blackberry that I've found just about everywhere I've gone ever. <laughs> mm. And they're delicious, but uh, them kind of growing up in these, these big bushes of thorns gives the opportunity for the soil and for the land to recover underneath them. And mm. Uh, yeah, I, I find them very useful if, if kind of looked at it through a permaculture perspective as successional species. And once the land has fully healed, they tend to sort themselves out. At least, okay, definitely not in all cases, but in a lot. It's just a matter of how patient you can be. I'm, sure. I'm already seeing, for example, on my farm with the cobbler's pegs that most people I think are like the most dreadful weed. Um, in places that have been away from the cows for the longest, they, they got excluded from a few corners long ago. Um, the cobbler's pegs are basically disappearing of their own accord. Um, mm. There will always be a few around, but the thick stands that we used to have, um, they're only really being uh, maintained in the places that, that the goats are grazing regularly, sure. that they're resetting that succession clock back um, periodically. Now, so look, we've talked a lot about your trials with those main three staple crops. Tell me a little bit about your discoveries and experiments with growing vegetables on a zero input method. Ah, yes. So, um, yeah, Steve Solomon probably is the, the, the big person to recommend here. He, his book, Gardening When It Counts, if you can find it, is re really wonderful. Just a really different way of looking at things. So um, I grow my vegetables as probably my most intensive crop, but it's relative thing. So no irrigation. Um, I only use hand tools. I don't mulch. And um, the main fertility inputs that they get, I've got my goat pens that are right next to my vegetable gardens. So it's a waste product that I've got to find something to do with. Um, if I had to get trucks of manure in, I'd find another way. So it's basically using what you already have. Um, the other thing I use are ash and I make my own charcoal in just a really simple um, kind of non-mechanical way on the ground, just quenching it with water. Um, our soil is a really most people would say horrible cracking clay. Um, when it really dries out, it cracks so severely that you can put your hand down in between the cracks. Wow. So that's a bit of a challenge, but gradually adding those amendments just as a surface uh, dressing uh, when I establish crops, uh, the texture of it does improve over time, particularly the charcoal is really good at that. Mm. Um, I have done experiments previously with more intensive growing where you dig manure and compost into the ground and it's pretty good for like four months but because of our really warm climate, all of that organic matter just completely breaks down and the clay collapses. Um, any uh, soil structure that you had from organisms, like building all sorts of little tunnels through it, just completely collapses and you end up worse than you began. So oh. I now grow no dig. I only put my manure and charcoal on the surface and they do eventually find their way into the soil profile. It takes a few years, but it saves a lot of work. Um, it's a fairly large area, probably about a quarter acre but only about a sixth of that at a time is uh, this year's intensive crop. Um, a lot of the vegetables that I grow are fairly persistent. So um, eggplants and leaf broccoli uh, keep going for years. So what I tend to do is I'll move every year to a new uh, cell, a new one sixth uh, segment, and the old crops just continue on. And anytime conditions turn reasonable, we get a bit of rain and the temperatures aren't too extreme, they will start producing again and I, I get a bonus crop. Um, but I tend to plant green manures over those crops to let the land rest for a while as well. And I prefer, and my idea is 
why would you move organic matter around when it's blowing on the wind? Like there's, that's where the carbon comes from. It's in the air. Mm -hmm. You've just got to get photosynthesis working to pump it into the soil for you and save all of that work. Sure. And foster the rest of the life inside of the soil that will start integrating it down into deeper layers. Yes. Yeah. Which, and it's really, it's really amazing looking at my soil when it's dry, you can dig some of it up with, with great effort. It's like concrete. The plants are all still growing fine in it. But if you look at it closely, you can actually see like a honeycomb of little uh, tunnels going all the way through it. So it, it's funny. I always see people wanting that crumbly black soil that you can just plunge your hand in up to your elbow completely effortlessly. But soil that is friable and accessible from a plant's root perspective is really difficult, uh, different to soil that's accessible from a hand's perspective or a tool's perspective. So you can't just look at soil and say whether it's good or bad. Um, you have to see what the plants actually want to do in it. Sure. Yeah, that's one thing actually I've been learning because I've been doing some gardening trials at a neighbor's plot here and their, their soil has been tilled for years and years. It's actually off the side of a hazelnut orchard and mm. it doesn't have much organic matter in it. And every time any kind of grass or weeds start to come back, they just rototill it again. And so as a result, it's very hard clay compact and as I started to kind of dig through it and do some experiments, I could see just like what you were talking about, not so much a honeycomb, but major holes and pores in the, the lower layers, because there's actually quite a bit of life of um, like worms and different bugs and stuff that I've been surprised at how well certain things have grown. It still obviously needs a lot more water than I would like to normally put on it. And I would say it would need mulching. But again, I'm using mostly annual vegetables to trial things out and mm. yeah it, it, it's true it, like you can't necessarily judge it by what we think of as good soil for you know ornamental gardens or intensive vegetable patches certain plants mm. will do just fine and there's a lot going on underneath the surface that that you might not be completely unaware of mm. and ultimately the soil biology is is what counts and Definitely. you can't tell that just by looking at it uh, and think of, think of it on the flip side. You could have like the most perfect fertile soil in the world and like take a photo of it for Instagram. Everyone's like, ooh, that looks amazing. You could pour like a kilogram of salt in it and make it completely impossible for anything to grow in it. It would sure. look exactly the same. Mm -hmm. um, so, and Or put it in an oven. <laughs> <laughs> and I do grow a lot of annual vegetables in that space, um, mostly for our home production. So I'm, I don't really care about maximum uh, output. Um, I, I decided long ago I never want to produce uh, particularly perishable food for other people because um, as the recent disruptions have shown, if you've got a, a pallet load of lettuce wilting in the sun and someone either can't buy it or wants to pay less for it, you really don't have any bargaining power. Sure. So um, instead, I focus on finding uh, varieties that perform really well in our conditions. Um, so I'll do variety trials, for example, have been doing for years. So with tomatoes, I'll buy everything in the seed catalogs that's available plant them all side by side, use the sun stun technique of just neglecting them and seeing what they do, just only giving them what I have on hand, which is a little bit of goat manure. And it's remarkable seeing the difference in performance. Um, and you don't know what is going to perform well unless you treat them really badly. Um, like you don't know even if what you're doing in intensive crops is necessarily helping them. Um, it might be like, um, I don't know, doing some kind of magic ritual to make the fairies come down and pollinate the flowers. And you spend all this energy on this ritual and you don't actually need to do it. The bees are doing it when you're not looking. Mm. 
Yeah, so I until agree you that, pull that's... out all the stops and, and my approach always is basically start with the bare minimum. What's the least amount of resource I can put into this and see what happens. And if it doesn't work and I still think it's important for it to happen, I might put a little bit more resources into it and see if it makes a difference. Um, but for, tomatoes, for example, um, they're a really good example of a crop that everyone knows and loves but they've got a really interesting history. So the original species, there's lots of different ones, uh, come from northern part of South America. And the closest experience most people have with those is, um, I don't know if you know the weedy cherry tomatoes that are quite different from like the more domesticated tomatoes, little small fruit, they self-seed everywhere and they just grow like weeds. Um, I haven't grown them myself, but I know what you're talking about. Yeah, uh, so they're actually different species um, called... Uh, Oh, it's now Solanum, but I think it's, oh, what's the species name? Pimpinella folia. Pimpinella folia. Um, so that gives you an example about the potential vigor in that genus and the productivity and just how they can grow like weeds. You compare that with like, I don't know, your mortgage lifter kind of tomatoes that need all of this primping and, and fussing. Otherwise, they just completely collapse and produce nothing. Sure. So um, from those original wild species, some of those were taken to Central America through some kind of exchange that happened long ago, but most of the genetic diversity was left behind. But they were still relatively vigorous. Those Central American tomatoes were then discovered by the Europeans and taken to the old world, um, where they were like grown in Europe for a while. And then those European tomatoes were taken back to North America, where a lot of the diversity and breeding comes from today. Sure. So from those original wild species that grow like weeds, it's been genetically bottlenecked over and over and over again until most of the important genetic diversity is gone. Um, a, a really good book that people might want to look at is Raoul Robinson, Re, um, Return to Resistance, which is a really great um, synthesis of how um, plant resistance and vigor is impacted by um, breeding, where we, we just pick out that one perfect tomato over and over again until all of the, the genetic diversity and vigor is lost. So getting back to tomatoes, um, from the variety trials I did, one variety stood out called Principe Borghese, it's this really peculiar little thing. It's a determinate one and it gets like a foot tall and then it fruits itself to death. And it's got small tomatoes, bigger than a cherry tomato, but not huge, that are really, really dense. They use them as a drying tomato, I think in Italy. That's mm -hmm. where, they, kind of, where the name comes from. And they grow like weeds. And out of all my variety trials, they're just like, how do these things like refuse to die under these horrible conditions that I'm giving them? Like no matter what I throw at them, they just keep growing. So they're my main variety now. And I looked into their um, origins they're one of the original Central American varieties. So they're closer to that uh -huh. original center of diversity. Um, and since then, I've tracked down some other original species and they've been incorporated into my breeding and they're just as vigorous. Like I don't have to worry about diseases. I don't water them. Um, we get a fruit fly here that decimates larger tomatoes. They don't seem interested in them for whatever reason. And um, you can make your life so much easier, but you've got to go through those hard initial stages of letting things die if they're not yeah. going to take the conditions that you have. Yeah. So that's something I'm always trying to explain to my partner here who has been gardening with her family and in this area for a long time where everybody is, you know, cultivating the soil and primping and preening and uh, giving all this extra care to these very fragile little hybridized vegetables. And I'm like, yeah, I'm just going to put the seeds in there and I'm going to leave them <laughs> and I'm going to try and ignore them. And I'm hoping most of them will die so that I get a few that we can. And she just, yeah, it's it's a it's an uphill battle explaining my my experimentation. <laughs> you'll you'll have to. Why would you want them blog. to die? <laughs> yeah. 
Well, you don't want all of them to die. You want just enough to survive that you can continue on and and build from there. Yeah, Um, It's actually a a big problem here in in subtropical Australia because most of our vegetable seeds comes from southern Australia, which is much more temperate. Sure. Um, And even some of it comes from overseas, from like Holland, from like greenhouses. So um, we have almost no vegetable growing tradition. Um, and what little was starting to appear in the early days of colonization has just been completely replaced by like supermarkets yeah. and food imports. So we're really starting from scratch. And in some ways, like the world is changing so much. Um, you know, the, the, the atmosphere itself is changing that we really need to reinvent agriculture everywhere. Um, that's it, a big point I like to make to people. It's not just the temperature and the rainfall that's changing. The carbon dioxide level in the air has pretty much doubled. That's the rate limiting step for photosynthesis everywhere on the planet. Mm-hmm. Um, like there's deserts turning green everywhere because they were limited by carbon dioxide before. And we're only just starting to get a hint of what the future implications of that are going to be. So there um, are but, things to, to have hope about as well. And it's a reason to maintain diversity as well. Like I could produce the perfect arrowroot for my conditions today in 50 years time that's probably not going to be perfect anymore. Yeah, um, yeah, yeah. So like with the arrowroot, as I'm doing all that breeding, I'm maintaining um, populations of as many diverse uh, species that, that I could find during my early trials. Mm-hmm. Um, I've got species with horrible tiny tubers on them, but there might be something hiding in them that eventually will be useful. And if you were growing arrowroot in its center of origin in Peru, those wild species would be, you know, growing off in the margins to tap into. And often during the domestication of a crop, uh, genetic uh, information comes from those wild species through its development um, just by accident. Um, but if you're not in a center of diversity, which, I mean, we're in a center of bunya diversity here, but not much else. When you start breeding a crop, you have to make sure you bring in as much diversity as you can and you maintain it. You don't just instantly go for what looks perfect and then throw everything else away. Yeah. 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 Which is entirely counter to everything that we're doing in most agricultural practices at the moment. Mm. It's interesting. I've heard about traditional um, maize growing societies and like the Americas that they would have an elder whose job was to select the seed corn from next year. And like plant breeders would go to these little villages in in the early days and, and watch the process. And this little old lady would like come out and look at all the corn and she just seemed to pick them out at random. And the guys are like, like, why don't you pick all the biggest, um, cobs of corn for next year and then you'll have like more corn next year and she's like no 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 if you pick only those ones they may not do very well next year we could have a drought or a frost or something else happen um and they knew to maintain a variety in the crops that they were growing and a Mm. lot of the old land race crops were like that they were genetically diverse yeah i mean it definitely makes sense when you redefine the parameters of what you're trying to achieve if it's not just raising higher yields getting larger fruit getting um I don't know, more, more aesthetically pleasing, especially because it's constantly changing for what supermarkets will buy or what the market will, will pay for. And you're looking more at the resilience and the hardiness of a species. It totally changes what you select for. Absolutely. And and particularly um, a lot of the, for for vegetables, uh, the material that people can access these days is selected for greenhouse production for like commercial production where you want a uniform crop that ripens all at once. So you don't have to go back and pick it a second time um, and transports easily and looks good. 
And for a home grower, you often want exactly the opposite. You want a crop that you can harvest gradually over a long period of time so that you can, you know, you don't have to process it all at once. Mm -hmm. um, you want something that tastes good rather than can sit in a box and get, you know, thrown around in the back of a truck. Um, so for home growers, um, the, the requirements of what you're looking for are completely different. And heritage vegetables like heirloom vegetables are a place to look for that. But even a lot of that genetics is from like, I don't know, a hundred years ago when it was mostly market gardens, it was mostly industrialized. Um, and a lot of the genetics hasn't been maintained particularly well also, like the, the quality of the lines has been neglected over the years, mm -hmm. um, particularly for outcrossing crops like cucurbits, you need large populations and constantly selecting uh, quality fruit. Otherwise they degrade over time. And um, for home gardeners, that's difficult to do. Um, in the old days, like everyone in the village would be growing that particular variety because they knew it grew well in that area and they'd constantly be swapping seeds and pollen with each other to maintain that population. Um, if you're just one home gardener growing, you know, some weird heirloom squash, it's very difficult to, <laughs> to do that, to replicate that. Sure, sure. Yeah, and then, you know, you get into the complications of saving seeds for certain things that hybridize easily, like the squash you mentioned. Um, mm. And, you know, there's a lot to learn if it's something you're going to take on as more of a vocation. And so with that said, can you give our listeners some, actually give me some advice on how to get started since I don't have a degree in biochemistry or a lot of experience uh, breeding plants. Is this something that's approachable for someone at the home scale without, you know, getting the degree in these sciences? Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. Um, for people interested in going down this route, and I, I'd highly recommend it. Like it, it it's just, it's so rewarding seeing something different every year when you, when you do plant breeding. Um, I'd recommend looking at the open source seed initiative. Um, they're a great group in uh, based in America, but they're all around the world who are coordinating people who are interested in breeding particular crops on an amateur scale um, and exchanging materials. So they're wonderful. Um, I think there's a free the seed podcast as well that um, interviews a particular plant breeder for each episode to, to go over their experiences um, and it's not just zero input. It's like people that do more intensive stuff, I think are the more, more usual uh, approach, but they're great resources. Um, my advice would be to, if you want to go down this route is to not take on too much at once. So I'll normally focus on doing a variety trial of like one crop a year is plenty. Um, I'll then source as much material as I can. So um, a good example is I did, um, uh, what are they called? Uh, scallions or shallots, different mm -hmm. cultures call them different names and, yeah, it's yeah. confusing. Um, like small onions, onions yes, yeah. yeah, even without the bulb on them. Mm -hmm. So um, I wanted to find a variety of those that would actually flower reliably here. Um, so I could save seed. When I buy varieties from like more temperate latitudes, they flower at the wrong time and it's often in the middle of a drought and they just drop dead or they refuse to flower at all. Uh, so I sourced about oh, 20 different varieties, even just off eBay, different names. Sometimes the same thing from different places is different. So I don't always rely on the names. Um, I, I can't tell you the number of times I've bought something under a particular variety and it's like, that's not the right thing. Mm. Um, so grow them all in parallel. Often you'll find that some of them don't even germinate. Um, commercial seed is very variable in quality. And for people who are reluctant to grow from seed, it's often a case that you've had seed that was dead before you even began. Like no matter how skilled you are, if you've just grown that one packet of seed, you were never going to get anything out of it anyway. Mm -hmm. So it's a, it's a good general idea to try seed from lots of different locations, grow them in parallel, see what seems to perform better than others. 
And I usually allow them to all hybridize with each other if they're an outcrossing variety. And I only keep the seed from the varieties that actually performed well. So I know at least half of the genetics has some useful qualities. Mm-hmm. So with the shallots, for example, I like ones that have quite thick stems, almost like a leek. Um, and if they've got really blue leaves, they tend to hold up to our summer droughts a bit better. So the crop continues for years even. They just keep coming back. Um, and I'm in my third year with those. And now I can reliably direct sow the seed. Before, when I just had small amounts of relatively weak and um, unpredictable seed, I'd actually started in pots and transplanted and, you know, coddle it a little bit to get sure. it going. Um, but now it's starting to um, settle into my conditions and yeah, and I've got more seed on hand to play with. Uh, it's not a huge issue if I have to re-sow something if the, um, if the weather turns against me at the start of the crop. Um, and yeah, now I have a strain that it's my particular thing and um, I, I can keep it going for as long as I want and share it with people in the neighborhood. Very exciting. And that's, I find that magical. I don't know how many of my listeners get excited about those same things, but I would imagine a good few of them. And I'm really excited to start trialing some of these things myself now that I find myself in a climate that I'm going to be in for more than one growing season, which was always the trick Mm -hmm. when I was traveling so much. And um, There's something almost magical about seeing a crop that you always struggled with that it's like, oh, I mean, it kind of grows, but it's, it's a bit of a pain. And once you get that first bit of genetic mixing happening, it just transforms. It, it mm-hmm. suddenly feels like it's at home and it wants to be there. Um, and that said, on the flip side, I've trialed and rejected a lot of crops as well. I don't grow everything. And there's a lot of crops that are really tailored for um, like commercial and market gardening that just aren't worth doing on a home scale, in, in my opinion. So like broccoli, for example, it's an inbred cousin of kale. Um, and the reason why they inbred it to make those big fat heads that you pick all at once is so that you can throw them in, a, in an ox cart and take them to market without them wilting. If you try and do that with kale, you don't even get to the end of the street and it's inedible. It's wilted so much. Mm. But kale is so much more vigorous because it's got all of that ancestral genetic diversity still in it. Whereas um, broccoli had to be inbred over and over again to make this really specialized kind of mutant version of kale. Mm. So I think for home gardeners, you've got to keep that in mind. There's a lot of crops that you're used to eating that you buy in the shops. They just don't work in a, in a small garden that you're producing just for yourself. Right, right. Again, just because they've been selected for strange things that are not necessarily in line with the, the vigor and the resilience of the crop. Absolutely, yeah. And, and just the way you use them as well. Like I'd rather handle, uh, harvest a small handful of kale every second day for three months rather than get one huge head of broccoli all at once, that if a caterpillar comes along at the wrong time, it's ruined. (laughs) Or if I wait three days too long, it starts turning into little yellow flowers and it's inedible. It's like, why would you make life so much harder for yourself and get less in the end? Like if you piled up all of those kale leaves over three months, it's probably five times as much as you get from that one broccoli head. Oh, and they're delicious too. I love eating those. (laughs) Though you have to try um, spigarello leaf broccoli. I'm not sure if I've tried that one. Is that it's from southern Italy, but flowering head. Uh, no, no, no. You don't eat the um, the flowers on it, though. You can if you want. I mean, brassicas you can eat almost any part of it. No, it's a leaf broccoli, so it looks like a kale, but it tastes like a broccoli, mm. and it grows in the southern part of Italy where it's much warmer and drier, um, and it flowers reliably at our um, latitude as well. I've I've grown so many kales, and they do okay, but they I've never flower get seeds here. Seeds for that, I would imagine don't. it does well here. Well, I got some of my seed off eBay in Italy. So look around in Europe and people do grow it. But it's one of these old things that, you know, it's, it's, it's growing in some granny's garden in Sicily 
but because you can't commercialize it on a supermarket scale, um, it's, it's almost been lost. Yeah. Well, so that's what I was going to ask you is like, where are some of your favorite sources for seeds that are hard to find in other places? uh, We're in a difficult position in Australia because we're behind quarantine barriers, which are are rightly so. Um, Importing seed is a lot easier than importing um, plants. Plants are almost impossible. So that's one reason I've I've tried to tap into seed so I can look all over the world. Um, The other thing that's important for me is commercial crops are almost impossible to bring in. So if I wanted to import maize seed, for example, because it's a major industrial crop here and it's got so many pests and diseases to worry about, they just won't let it through. Mm -hmm. Um, That's one of the reasons I've gone for these orphan crops that no one cares about, like canna. Um, I can import canna seeds, no worries. Um, That said, um, my advice in finding seed is just everywhere. Um, There is no one perfect place. There's a few really wonderful... um, seed catalogs that I know about in the U S um, but a lot of the stuff I can't even access. It, it, it won't get through. Sure. Um, so people overseas, uh, if you're interested in a particular crop, get as much diversity as you can find and as much that you can actually grow out and handle. Um, but don't do too many crops at once. Like just focus on like doing tomatoes one year. And then from every year after that, just grow the one or two varieties that do really well for you. Nice. Mm. And so before I let you go, where can people find your blog and learn more about your zero input experiments? Oh, of course. Um, so I blog every week at zeroinputagriculture.com. Um, it's just a, a very basic um, WordPress blog at the moment. So um, I do put up index posts every now and then that make it a little bit easier to navigate. So um, scroll through until you find those if you want to find a particular topic. And yeah, every week I put up another long form kind of thousand... 2000 word long uh, article uh, mixture of plant profiles and techniques and occasionally philosophical ramblings um, about all of my research into like deep history and history of agriculture, occasional book reviews, um, trying to keep it interesting. Nice. Well, I'm looking forward to going deeper into the archives of that blog. I want to commend you. I think it's really well written and I highly recommend to the listeners to check it out and, and hear a new and very well informed perspective on looking at agriculture because, so this is going to be part of the regenerative ag series that's actually still ongoing at the moment. And I think offers a really good perspective because while so many options are available for improving the the functions of an ecosystem through agricultural practices, they are still very input heavy. And it's one of the aspects of that industry that is very, very rarely talked about. So Again, thank you so much mm. for your perspective and your information and your ongoing trials on this. I find it fascinating. And thanks for reaching out. I wouldn't have known about this otherwise. Oh, no worries. No worries. It's been a real pleasure. And thank you so much for having me on. All right. Well, I look forward to doing a follow-up sometime. There's, I mean, like so many of these interviews, I ended up with more questions uh, <laughs> by the end of it than I had at the beginning. So let's stay in touch. And thank you so much for your time. Thank you. All right. Take care. All right, that wraps things up for this week's episode. If you enjoyed this interview and want to find more like it, as well as articles and other resources, you can find the full library of previous podcasts at AbundantEdge.com. The best part is that you can search by category, topics, or keywords on our brand new website rather than scrolling through more than 140 interviews. I've spoken to experts on everything from growing your own food, building homes from natural materials, beekeeping, vermicompost, permaculture design techniques, and so much more. Before we go, I just want to say thank you so much to those of you who have taken the time to reach out to me via comments and emails. 
Your input helps a lot in making this show the open conversation and exchange of ideas that it's meant to be, and it helps me to make better content on the topics that you're interested in. If you have any insights, advice, suggestions, or questions, be sure to send them to me at info at AbundantEdge.com, and I'll look forward to being in touch. New episodes come out every Friday like clockwork, so don't forget to subscribe to the show through our website or through your favorite podcast streaming platform, and I'll catch you on next week's show.